Hey, Small Beans listener, did you know we're in the process of trying to make a movie? It's true. It's called Papa Bear and tells the story of the time my dad came out as a gay furry when I was 17. We're currently looking for investors, creative partners, and talent to attach to the project. If you'd like to know more or to see our script, lookbook, and business plan, please hit us up at allthesmallbeans at gmail.com. Small Beans patrons can also listen in on the whole process by checking out our movie production diary series over at the Patreon. Thanks for your time, and now, on with the pod. Listen, Katie, you can blame it all on Dad. Mike was wrong. Tiny little Samuel Jackson. I forgot that we're supposed to start with songs There's on <laughs> Kings of King, remember? Yeah. That was the bit I last season. Yeah. I love that. That was good. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Yeah, there's a little little Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. He fits in a little cubby hole. Tiny little, little put him in my pocket. It made me want to it made me want to see an Indian in the cupboard with Samuel L. Jackson just kicking ass. <laughs> just yeah, just being a badass in a suit. Yeah, recruiting the best of the best action figures. Like a, an expensive suit for a secret government project. This is Kings of King. Yeah. We're back. That's a We're percent. back, baby. Uh that's Michael Swain. And I'm and I'm and, sorry, we owe you a Mangler yeah. song. Uh we'll get we'll mail that to you individually. Uh but yeah. I kinda had a Mangler mm-hmm. rap. It was kind that's of That's true. A oh, you saved our asses, dude. I did. That's, yeah. yeah, wow. That's right. Okay. So then we'll alternate. So that's the bit for season two. Next time <laughs> Abe will have a rap and so on. I don't wanna do <laughs> I that. I don't wanna have to do that. <laughs> Uh, but this is a podcast, which you're probably aware of. What newcomers might not be aware of is that this is season two, episode two, 1408, which is confusing, but that's the name of the movie. It's not a year. It's a hotel room number. And uh, this is a podcast where we cover every, I mean, eventually, hopefully, every uh, Stephen King adaptation. There's a lot of those. So strap in. Uh, Ooh, for spooky Americana. That's what we're talking about. And uh, nothing more American than hotel rooms, I guess. I don't know. It's Maybe. like the, a cheeseburger like, I don't know. wrapped around a baseball. But sure, hotel rooms are up there. Uh, Stephen King <laughs> said in the expository material around where this story, the beginning of this story first appeared, which is in his book, On Writing, which is a nonfiction book on writing, as you might expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, and I think that is a good framing for this. He said, uh, uh, hotel rooms are inherently creepy to me. How many people have slept in that bed before me? You know, the germs. Has anyone gone crazy in this room? Has anyone died in this room? These are the questions (laughs) that occur to Stephen King when he stays in a hotel room and uh, that extrapolated out into the story. Interesting factoid is that he actually only wrote the first page of this story so that he would have material for his on writing book to analyze. Like he, as in a chapter, he goes like, so let's say you're writing the first page of a story. Here's something blah. 
And then you would edit it this way. And then he, of course, because mm-hmm. he's so prolific, he went back and he's like, well, I wrote the first page of that story. I may as well finish it. So he turned it into a full short story. And Hollywood was like, automatically, yes, we adapt everything you touch. <laughs> so it got the full treatment in 2007, starring previously aforementioned uh, Samuel L. Jackson, as well as John Cusack in the main role. And let's get into it, shall we, Abers? Yeah, let's. Yeah. Absolutely. This is a show an where we one. analyze the movie through three spectra. What's the first one, bud? This one's Under the Dome, where we basically give an elevator synopsis of the movie and pick apart little sequences that we think are relevant. Ha! Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Mike Enslin is an author living in L.A. that goes to haunted hotels or graveyards and whatnot and writes about his experiences. The first scene in the, of the film is he him going to like a haunted bed and breakfast? It's clear that he's a skeptic. He's never seen a ghost. He's also kind of a dick to people. Seems to be downtrodden in his lot uh, in life. He's life is kind of depressing because he's very lonely. Even people who want to see him and are fans of his work, like people on the street, recognize him. He has a very cold demeanor toward them. Uh, there's a fan that approaches him at one point about a, a book that he wrote early in his life, which was a fiction, um, kind of like, oh, this was him trying to write something that mattered to him. And we can tell that his life didn't go the initial way he intended uh, because he's kind of like, I don't know, not embarrassed by it, but he definitely doesn't want to like give this fan the benefit of being like, oh, you're a super fan. You really know. So that mm-hmm. so there's this feeling of him just shutting down all aspects of his life. Uh, the movie also wants you to know. And I think this is John Cusack probably requesting this movie wants you to know that he likes sports. He, uh, first thing that becomes up later is he almost dies surfing. He almost drowns, mm-hmm. uh, because big like rogue wave hits him and wakes up on the beach, coughs out some water. A dude's like, dude, are you all right? And it seems that he's fine. And he goes and picks up the mail. Um, at another point he does a little, little hooping. <laughs> I just thought it was funny that like Stephen King definitely wouldn't write in that. Like he is big into sports, but like, it seems like that's true in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and stop me if I'm going too fast, but I'll move right on to in his, uh, he gets fan mail and in his fan mail, he gets a postcard of the dolphin hotel, which the postcard only says, do not enter 1408. He adds the numbers together and gets 13, and he's like, hmm, cute. <laughs> Actually, it says, also- for the record, don't enter 1408. And the only reason I bring that up yeah. is it was pointed out on a forum that if you add the characters together, don't enter 1408, that's also 13. And this will continue. There's like oh, wow. 55 references. It's a numbers to game, the- baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he's on to these people who are making up these ghost stories. He's going to skeptic the shit out of them. Uh, and that's kind of the promise of the movie. So he calls the dolphin and they're like, it's, uh, I want to, I want to go to 1408 and he, and they're like, nah, it's unavailable and it's always unavailable. He even asked for it next year and he's like, it's unavailable and they hang up on him. So he calls Tony Shalhoub, uh, who is his, uh, publisher, I gather, and also or a lawyer, agent, something like that. 
lawyer agent he also works in a fast talking newspaper <laughs> uh, office for, apparently but they uh they found a legal loophole due to a federal civil rights case that if the room is unoccupied and requested the hotel has to give it to a customer um doing a little research that's actually half true you can't request a specific room but you can always request room and get it unless room. you're disruptive so, hotels are not are legally supposed to turn you out on the street for yeah. no reason like you have a right to shelter if you can afford it yeah uh we learned that he has a past in new york city at this point in act one uh a woman named lily is mentioned we're kind of gathering that that's his wife or a romantic partner of some kind and uh how mike is going to avoid any rehashing or talking to her uh, when he is in New York City, uh, because that's where the dolphin is. Um, he boom, he arrives at the dolphin. He's in New York now, um, and they just don't want to give him the room, uh, so they say no. And he finally, like, there's people. He kind of takes in uh, the uh, the setting of the uh, the setting of the hotel itself. Kind of does feel like out of time. Uh, hotel kind of like Barton Fink's hotel mm -hmm. uh, the people staying at the hotel seem to be displaced in time there's an old baby carriage uh, there's a dude with James Joyce glasses it just kind like when I was watching it I kind of got the vibe of like oh wait is this all made up kind of thing like it I think they wanted you to think that because they actually don't they zag when you expect the zig is this the 13th uh, floor I mean it takes place yeah. on the 13th floor yeah Exactly. Um, so Samuel comes out because he's kind of the hotelier. The manager, head honcho. Although he's it's owned manager. by a giant uh, conglomerate. Like hotel company. Yeah, and, and I got to mention uh, at this point, they yeah. focus on the tiny character detail that uh, our hero, Mike Enslin, <laughs> Stephen King, writing about a writer. Wow. Um, wears a cigarette in his ear at all times. Olin asks about it. That's Samuel's name, Olin. Uh, yep. And he's like, I wear that. In case of nuclear holocaust or to superstitiously ward off nuclear holocaust, uh, which I think is just so quirky. I love it um, because he's quit. Yeah, he's quit smoking. So that's his last smoke uh, for whenever the for shit hits the, the world for like apocalypse yeah. smoke. Yeah, which is a plant and payoff. I mean, it's classic. Well, it's you, also you know that that's it rides, Chekhov's cigarette. Yeah, it also rides the line of, well, there's a lot of Chekhov's shit in this. Chekhov's all over this. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think we'll get into that. But. I think it also shows that he can be, right? He's superstitious, even though he's a skeptic. And that foreshadows exactly. that he's going to go from one side to the other over the course of the movie. It also tells you he didn't always used to be a skeptic, right. which is not something necessarily is true for every skeptic out there. Some people are kind of born that way. But he was uh, not a necessarily superstitious, but as we learn in later chapters, a religious man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he has a science arc, um, to blast us through this Olin scene. Basically it's whole purpose is, um, in a very frank way. I like comparing it to the shining cause the shining is a very low key, like luring you into slow paced. Maybe you could work at this hotel. I don't know. Maybe you could bring your family there. Um, Olin is like <laughs> in typical Samuel L fashion, the room's fucking evil. <laughs> like everyone who goes yeah. in dies. It's haunted. I don't want to have to see your fucking mutilated body, your body in an hour yeah. from now. He's like, it's not like a sly, subtle, you'll go crazy over the court. An hour, dude. No one lasts an hour. And then they're gouging their eyes out and shit. Like, no, you can't go in the room. And he goes, mm -hmm. I still don't believe you. And he says, here's a file of everyone who's died in there. 
oh, you only found the ones in the newspaper, which was like four that were especially provocative. So they got covered. But like 58 people have died in the room. Everyone who stays there dies. The maid who went in there died. Don't stay in the fucking room. And he goes, I'm going to or I'll sue you. And Olin's like, all right, you're going to die. Okay, bye. (laughs) Yeah, that's the whole purpose of Olin in this. Which I love. There's also a little bit of a, there's an undercurrent that I think is very interesting because I don't think it, any of it exists, but like leave it to Stephen King to always do it, which is to set up some form of dichotomy, which is so true about America. Like we do this, we say the others are like the problem and it's usually in King as it is in real life, like the city folk versus the rural folk. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, we have like LA, like writer, uh, and then like kind of not necessarily representing Hollywood, but definitely representing that uh, like West coast ethic. And then we have the East coast, like hotelier who has a part, like he's kind of displayed as a, a, like a work, like someone who's just a worker, but also he's wearing fancy suits and stuff like that. And then you think about the arguments they throw at each other, right? Like Samuel and uh, Mike get real kind of um, antagonizing at a certain point when they just won't do what the other they says. They debate the philosophy of belief. Yeah, they deb- And like kind of what they say is that like, uh, you know, Mike kind of throws at him. You just care about the hotel's reputation. You're doing this whole thing because you're a snake oil salesman. Yeah, I get I see right through you. You get me to get a little scared. I write about you in my book and it bumps up your uh, your earnings. Meanwhile, Samuel fires back that Mike isn't really a no, the noble writer with integrity that he thinks he is. He's like your readers expect grotesqueries and cheap thrills. And he calls him a bargain paperback writer and a narcissist. So they're kind of like there's this weird setup where it's like. One of them thinks they're doing the right thing. Like the skeptic believes that they are the person who is going to free us of these hoteliers. Uh, Meanwhile, you got Samuel L. Jackson, who is like, first off, like you said, he's like the room is evil as hell. So like, just don't do it. But he also is like, make he's dunking on this writer because the writer represents like high class. It's just a very like, I don't think. Uh, any of these things are true. I don't think any of uh, any of these people are like trying to like social status out the other one. But uh, it's something that Stephen King does with his characters. And I just noticed it. And it seems forced in this one. But whatever. Here we are. Well, <clears throat> I think it's primarily just trying to set a belief versus non-belief, which, again, is. Yeah, it's not not obvious uh, or yeah, loud. For sure. Um, and ends with Cusack saying, long-legged beasties don't exist. And here's the extra strip where I'm like, I get it. That's his arc. Because, uh, no, you know, none of that supernatural stuff exists. And that's how I know there is no God. And it's like, okay, I don't know you brought that into it other than for the purposes yep. of the screenplay. But um, he says, I think we've reached an understanding. He He flips through the folder as he goes up the elevator and walks down the hall. Uh, Olin also tells him that, you know, uh, the giant conglomerate that owns the hotels, the only reason he hasn't sealed it off, they won't let him. And that he basically closes all the potential plot holes you might initially think of. They ask like, uh, mm-hmm. and then he reveals that they, there is no 13th floor. So 1408 is technically 1308, 13, 
Um, oh. And then, I, yeah, as I said, I think the line of the movie as, on his way out, it's just a fucking evil room. It's <laughs> an evil fucking room. Yeah. And uh, he's a little affected by the gruesome crime scenes. But I think it's important to note, Cusack is now primed because he's had the experience before of haunted hotels he stays in because they know he's a writer. It's like a food critic going to a restaurant. They, he thinks they're going to try and make him think it's haunted. So he's ready for there to be some shenanigans, which is why he goes pretty far in justifying the initial shenanigans that he experiences, right? Mm -hmm. um, he constantly talks into his tape recorder so he can get a running inner monologue, basically. Um, and, you know, it's nominally he's writing his article into the tape recorder. But uh, he dicks around, dunking on the room and how nothing's happening. Hello, nothing's happening. And then stuff starts yeah. to happen real, real quick. So yeah. first it's minor. Uh, a window, a radio blasts loud music and makes him bang his head on the windowsill because he was leaning out the window. And then while he's dealing with that, he turns his back on the bed. And when he turns back, there's two chocolates on the pillow. And he's sure there was only one before. And he's like... Uh, you know, almost aloud to the room. He's like, cute, cute, Olin. Okay, all right. So you're doing some sleight of hand. I appreciate this. Um, <clears throat> he's like, but that means someone's still in here with me. Yeah, he concocts reasonable explanations, as I think you would. Um, for so, okay, so someone has to be very... in the room. Right. And he searches the room right. and no one's in the room. And then he tells himself, well, while I was searching the bathroom, I he probably slipped out. I probably searched in the wrong order. You know, constantly justifying uh, I'm going to shout this out as we go through because something I thought was interesting is the screenplay is loosely based around DABDA, which is now a debunked uh, psychological phenomenon, but it's depression, anger, bargaining, de or sorry, denial, anger, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, the five stages of grief. So we start with right. denial. He has all these reasonable explanations um, and suddenly he starts to feel really, really hot. He checks the thermostat. It does nothing. So he calls the front desk and they say they'll send someone up to fix the thermostat. And they also say, like, are you do you would you like to check out? Are you, it's hot? The chocolate thing. And he's like, no, no, no. Nice try. No, I'm staying. Suddenly he hears a baby crying through the wall. It's man, they stack it fast. It's like a survival video game. It's the whole movie. That's the room doesn't we'll talk let about up. a little yeah. bit later. They like the all of act two is just like. Another one, another one, another one, another one. Yeah. Another one. Yeah. baby crying through the wall, mom humming to it tunelessly in a creepy way. And he's like, all right, that's creepy. He starts to do his ghost hunting stuff, you know, stick to his routine. So he busts out his UV light. He sees splatter everywhere. He starts thinking of what could it be? It's probably blood from crime scenes. He's starting to get a little spooked. Uh, he notices that there's a creepy painting of a ship that's tilted and he goes and straightens it. And when he looks back at it, it's tilted again. And suddenly he thinks he can hear the light sound of waves crashing coming from it. But that gets interrupted when the workman arrives and knocks on the door. And it's fucking Clay. And guess who it is? <laughs> she. Yeah, it's Clay Davis. It's Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Yeah. Uh, and he helps Mike fix the AC but refuses to go into the room. Yeah. Um, like, and he bails as soon as it's fixed. He Batman's uh, out of there when he's like, yeah, he really can I does. tip you? And he's like, nah. And then Mike starts to drink again, which is another thing, which is that he got this fancy booze from Orlin uh, or Olin. And he uh, he's been pulling 
uh, on it like the whole night. Mm-hmm. Although it's only st- 8 p.m., which we notice because the radio plays again. And then the clock changes from 8 p.m. to a 60 minute countdown, the aforementioned hour that people will last in this room. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looks outside and. Um, the window slams on his hand uh, and he's now bleeding and he goes to the bathroom uh, and while he's cleaning the wound, uh, the sink tries to blast him with some hot water uh, and the radio plays again. So it's just like cacophony basically. Yeah, and the radio uh, always plays this particular cheerful song with the lyric, it's only just begun. <laughs> yeah, the Carpenters. Like um, and he uh, he rips the radio out of the wall. But it's still powered, still count down. Pretty, uh, pretty standard st- spooky stuff. Mm-hmm. Really the nice little rings. touch. I noticed this time. I really like his blood drips into the carpet, and the carpet almost yes. seems to like drink it up, like suck it up. That, yeah. I the direction. I, I actually want to take a moment and just speak to some of the smart direction. Uh, this guy did a really good job. I think one of the best parts, like that, is a really good shot. One of the best parts of the design of everything is that the layout of the room is very good. The bathroom being kind of like a bridge from the bedroom and the living room. So it's basically a big circle with a lot of doors is really smart because now the director can get like a wide lens and expand that background's presence. And so you can see into the other rooms with with any wide shot. And usually like if the windows open, you get this wispy, you know, curtains or something like that. Or maybe someone's going to be there uh, because you're expecting it because it's spooky in a kind of a horror movie. And they do the Uh, smart thing, which is there's dozens of shots like this. So most of the time there isn't someone there. And of course, every once in a while there is. And and it surprises you every time. At any point, something can happen over there out of the gaze of the character. And it really builds this uh, constant sense of uneasiness because it's always there. It's always the shot. Yeah. So to the point it's that something you're kind of uh, locked re- into. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I re- yeah, I just well, like that. It, that sets you up to expect the next haunting that happens is uh, he gets mm-hmm. a call from the front desk and this woman who you've met because he saw her in the front desk. He's talked to her on the phone before. She has this very chipper voice that almost sounds like a Siri voice. And I think if you're like me, at least. My experience was I you're expecting that to be a haunting at this point. So you're like, mm. she's going to start saying evil shit or not be real. And they perfectly ride the line of she says it turns out she's not a haunting. She's real or she seems to be real because of the stuff that happens after. But she says weird, banal hotel shit in a chain where it's like, are you hearing what I'm saying? She doesn't respond to what he's saying directly. She just says like checkout time is 10 a.m. And you're like, wait, are you a machine? Are you a, um, so it's pretty creepy, but it it ends in him just demanding to talk to Olin and she goes, okay, I'll put you on hold and then just hangs up on him. So he goes, fuck this. I'm going to go talk to Samuel Jackson again. He goes to the door and tries to leave. Lo and behold, the door is stuck. It won't open. He tries the key. The key breaks off. He tries the knob. The knob breaks off. He bangs and screams. No one answers. He looks through the eye hole and there's another eye looking back and uh, it's on. Like it's a Rolodex of all possible creepy hotel room things. Right. And he goes to the window to crack for help. One of the cooler sequence. Yeah. Yeah. He sees a man smoking across from his window. Uh, like a perfectly adjacent window from across the way. <clears throat> but as soon as the man stands, uh, it becomes clear that he's just mimicking Cusack 
And I think we're supposed to believe that the room is like created a mirror, right? Mm -hmm. He sees, uh, and then he sees a masked man with a hammer approach the guy, his doppelganger. And so that causes him to go, oh shit, there's probably someone behind me. And there is. And there fucking is. So it's actually... They're fucking. And then there is like she vanishes in a shot. It's like the reverse of those Arkham video games with the Joker. Like he just looks away and looks back, and she's gone. Right. It's just a ghost, though. Doesn't seem to inflict any harm to Mike. Um, And that's interesting because at this point, it's like, what's is what's the point of the room? I just want us to ask ourselves this: Is it like an entity that? Uh, purposely needs to generate fear. Doesn't want to create ghosts. Doesn't want to kill him. I mean, we will see by the end clearly what the events are, but it's just very interesting to me of like, why go through that whole thing? <laughs> if you're just going to have like, um, and then I spooked you, yeah. uh, but I didn't like hurt you or anything. I just wanted to give you a little spookies. Well, specifically uh, traumatize you, which that thread mm-hmm. starts ramping up right now. Cause then Right. It, the room plays the voice of his daughter died of cancer saying, I see you, daddy. I love you. Or like, come help me. He, 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 creepy da- dead daughter stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He tries to talk himself down into the tape deck um, when suddenly he looks up and he thinks he sees a spy camera in the vent. And he now does the whole paranoia rant where he's like, are you liking right. this, Olin? I don't know how you did all this shit, but I hope whoever's spying on me is enjoying this. Are you not entertained? Is this like some kind of sadistic freak owns the hotel? What's going on? And then he realizes he still has a reasonable explanation that he can cling to because he says, oh, I ate the chocolates and I drank the booze. I'm probably on LSD or PCP or some shit like he dosed me with something. And he goes, so then his new, which uh, on our dab to scale, by the way, we're now into uh, bargaining when he was demanding to talk to Olin going, fuck you, fuck you. That was anger. Now we're in bargaining. Uh, He tells himself, so this will be fine. It's going to get bad before it gets better. But in five hours, you'll be straight. Like, that's the deal. Just hang on, man. Um. He, wa- he looks at his TV, which has suddenly sprung to life. It shows home video of him having like a poignantly good time with his daughter and ex-wife intentionally, of course, to make him cry, which he does. And then he just straight sees ghosts, just ghosts. <laughs> he sees Jumping out the window. Yeah, yeah, he sees a black and white ghost of a dude we know from the file, we recognize from the file, uh, jumping out the window to his death. We see a, a woman who seems to be colorized, like black and white, but colorized. Uh, like from the 50s. Crawl yeah. out the window and jump to her death. Um, the mom and the baby <laughs> start crying again. He starts screaming at them to get their attention and suddenly the baby sound distorts and repeats until it becomes like a like that gun that the government shoots at you to make you vomit. <laughs> like a sound like it's just a horrible screeching sound. Um and then it suddenly I love yeah, when he's looking at the I love when he's looking at the ghosts mm-hmm. like commit suicide. Yeah. It's just something about Cusack's acting. <laughs> like he's just blankly staring at them. Like he does not give a fuck. His little bird <laughs> and it's just it's Tiny just so lips. funny to me that something about the Cusack character is very great, which is that like one thing he did right before he uh, he lo- got paranoid about the ceiling vent is he throws a lamp out the window just to see what would happen. 
Mm-hmm. He's very, not only is he designed as a character to be a skeptic and that's the way he interacts with the world, but the movie does a great job. The story does a great job about like, if you're in that scenario and in movies and stories, when we often like really dislike a movie, it's because like the characters are acting not like the way that you would act. And I'd find that this it's, you'd be hard pressed to see a, someone who is logical uh, who wouldn't act this way. It's, it's very by design that he's like, okay, okay, this is the next step. Okay, what the fuck is that? Well, let's push against this thing. Uh, I need to get out. So let me bang against the walls. Let me, like every time he's confronted with a scenario, he really does try everything uh, to get out. But it's just that the room itself is just always one step ahead. Um, and that's just something uh, I, I would I give credit to the movie for. It gives him an image of his dying father in a wheelchair telling him, uh, or, you know, his dad who, suffering from like dementia and having a bad time in an mm. old folks home. And his dad looks at him and smiles and says, as I am, you will be ha 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 ha. Um, Suddenly he looks around and he's alone in the bathroom. So, you know, this is a trend. He's going to get visions and then they vanish. Uh, He tries to pull his shit together by recounting his day. Like, what did I have for breakfast yesterday, et cetera? And then he starts telling himself, okay, what if it's a dream? What if it's a nightmare? He's still Rolodexing possible mental ways out of this situation. He looks over and he sees a place on the wall that's cracked where he hit it with a chair to try and get the baby's attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, the wall is bleeding through the crack as if it's a wound. Uh, He briefly looks out the window and considers jumping as to try and potentially wake himself up, which I think is a great fake out because you know that the the room ultimately drives most of the ways people, some people die of a heart attack or an accident, final destination style, but most people kill themselves. And you're like, right. you're obviously thinking, uh, I think quite intentionally, oh, maybe we're wrapping up. Maybe the it makes you think you're being smart to jump out the window and that's how it gets <clears throat> you, right? So you think he might kill right. himself. And then it's a fake out because you realize he's not going to kill himself. He's thinking of climbing on the window ledge across to the next room over to get out of 1408. And you're like, that's actually smart. I would consider that. It's very scary, but that's a logical consideration. Um, Mm -hmm. So indeed, he tries to do that. He counts the stats. And I like Mm -hmm. just one thing. I like one one thing that makes you think that is that you you kind of start to think about that in your brain because like all the elements are there. Mm -hmm. And that's something that like an audience member can just kind of. Well, they just presented suicide. But they also. It's primed. Yeah. They also have John Cusack talking to his recorder as he gets as he's stepping onto the ledge. And he's like, if I die, I want everyone to know that this was that that is an accident. The room did not win. Mm-hmm. Um, Cusack is this point is like it's important to him, even if he dies, that it goes he goes out on his terms, right? That he's yeah. he's basically set the stage of like the the room didn't win though. Uh, I must have misstepped or something because I'm out here trying to get free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's what makes you kind of think of that. And I think it's interesting because he's also now set up an antagonizing force, which is the room, which is switched, switched from Olin just like three scenes ago. He's now convinced that, OK, maybe it might not the be. The room drugs. is my enemy maybe. is taking over. Yeah. Not uh, I don't believe that people are behind this. Now I believe that my right. enemy is the room itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's when he saw his father, uh, that's when that switch actually started to happen. 
Uh, well, it's because that's, doing personal shit now. That's a new escalation. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. He shimmies out the window across the ledge only to find that impossibly the whole building now is just a brick wall. The, the only windows that exist are the windows of 1408. So he has literally no choice but to go back the way he came. Uh, he almost falls because a ghosty spooks him, but he does climb back in, of course, because 1408 wants to keep toying with him. It's not going to end that. So he he almost falls. He climbs back in that old bit. Um, and the window, all nice touch. The window almost shuts before he can climb back in, but it doesn't. It lets him get in and then it shuts. Uh, right. He gets up from the ground to look at the hotel door where mockingly the fire escape map that says like your route out of the building has been all blacked out except the room 1408 and the thing that says you are here 1408. Fuck you, John Cusack, specifically. Yeah. I hate you. I'm the room, and uh, <laughs> I'm the room. Then the mask is off. The room does, it's like the mangler getting up. The room changes size. It throws lighting changes at him. It just makes spooky noises blue. whenever yeah. it wants. Um, outside the, all the windows and doors is just brick now. Like It's like you're in a brick box inside that the room is within. Mm -hmm. uh, all the windows are gone. It's an enclosed space. And uh, the final insult, and again, I think it's a it's the sensible escalation. Very smart. The final insult is he plays back his he goes, but there were windows here, and he plays back his own tape, and on the tape is himself saying it's weird how there's no windows, but he didn't say that, so now he can't trust his own tape, his own inner yeah. monologue. Everything has been violated. He has no, right? he, like an author, he has no pen and paper to like work it out. He has to just work it. He's only got his brain. Um, I also really like the lighting switch that happens here. It definitely is stark and noticeable because the room has been warm and like reds and yellows uh, up to this point before, and now it's sterile and blue. Uh, but I like it because now it segues into the next phase of what the room can do, which is basically, I'm just going to concoct like where there was a doorway. It is now a window into your past. You're going to go to a new location now. Um, and the room displays a hospital where he and his wife lost their kid to cancer. At, we're assuming at this point. Um, so he pulls out his laptop and video chats with this his is wife. depression, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. He's, just, yeah. he's yeah. Uh, and so now we're like, okay, so he's trying to, even though there was a reference earlier that like electronics don't work here, he's just going to try it. And uh, the room allows him to video chat with his wife, but obscures his image and makes him look ghost-like, that she's, like, very confused. Uh, and we find out that in, like, what's basically in the story up to this point is that he walked out on her after the death of their kid, presumably. Like, just she vanished. Got, the, yeah. Yeah. He just walked away. And uh, but he's telling her the whole and she obviously wants to talk about that because they're estranged. And she's like, I don't know even if we're supposed to be divorced or separate. Like, but I'm going to die right now. We can't talk about he's this like, right now. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Uh, something I don't obviously want to talk about at all because I am trying to avoid you and I'm in New York. So right now, just call the police. Uh, and, uh, you know, and she's like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, and then the room turns the sprinklers on and fries the laptop with water. Uh, and then he finally tries the ceiling vent because he's like, I think it's because he's looking up at the sprinklers and he knows mm -hmm. that he thinks that there's a camera there. He finally just goes, you know what? I'll get out via vent. 
And all the rooms that he's looking into as he scales the vents are scenes of his A life. A parade of um, his failures and the things he's most ashamed of in his life. Yeah. Mostly with uh, Lily, his wife, and his daughter. Not being there um, for his family. Yeah. Not being there for his family and also his father who kind of blamed him for doing so. Um and then he's attacked by a rotten corpse of one of the previous tenants, the one that I believe was trying to sew back together his, his own slit uh, his throat. own slit throat. Uh, and they kind of cat and the ma- cat and mouse into the vents. Uh, it's kind of like this maze where they kind of take left turns and right turns and try to evade each other. It's kind of cool. And then Cusack does the coolest thing in the film, which is kick his face apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Back in the, but then there's nowhere to go. It's just a bunch of room, so no, non comes, rooms. Falls back into the so room he and he falls says, back in the room. It's good to yeah. be back. It's good to Should be back. Said, he o- bitch, but <laughs> bitch. Yeah. He opens the fridge, uh, presumably to get more booze get or something. Yeah. But he finds a tiny little Samuel that we referenced before. <laughs> We're gonna put him in our pocket, and uh, and it's kind of a cryptic dialogue that says you're basically just you're supposed to be. Uh, here and he yells, "What do you want from me?" What? Uh, and then we cut well, to the also, outside of the fridge. Sorry, I think it's important that just for the the messaging that's going to come hot and heavy in the next act, Olin specifically, or you know, whatever the voice in his head that is Olin, or I think he speaks for the room, and the room can read your mind, and it it tortures you on a personal level. So the room says, you know, from its point of view, the little Olin says. You're actually a piece of shit, because uh, that's, of course, what it's always trying to convince you of. You're a piece of shit. Uh, you're you're out there putting cynicism into the world and being a skeptic, and you think it's just fun. Like, oh, I just write these fun books. Motherfucker, you're, you're purporting to say that you know for sure that there's no afterlife, that after this, that's it, that our dead loved ones are totally inaccessible and gone and not available to us anymore. Do you know how many hearts you've broken? And that's an interesting point, but I love, so it's like from the ghost room, Yeah, the room is also gaslighting you because it's not a fully fair point, but it's a good way to make you feel like a piece of shit. Uh, And so he flips out and wrecks the mini fridge. And this is great. It's so funny. At the last second, he sees that it's just a normal mini fridge and it does have booze in it, but then it shuts and it won't open again. So we can't get the booze. (laughs) I also just love the performance here. It's almost like Frank Reynolds and it's always sunny. He's like gargling like a goblin and ripping apart the inside. I want my drink. I want my drink. (laughs) And then what's funny is that he walks over and he's like, oh, yeah, he has a a drink. He still has the booze that uh, Samuel gave him. So it's just funny to me that he's acting like that. Alcoholic as well. I read that as as he was trying to find booze that he's not suspicious was dosed. But then, because right. right at this moment, he says to the room, you win. And then he drinks Olin booze. Then he drinks So I think Olin he's booze, like, fuck yeah. it. I'm going to, even if it is dosed, like I'm beyond he's caring about that. He's lost his skepticism. Yeah. 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 It's just, he's not, he's, he's not what he used to be. So then basically. the room shows him the moment that he first lost his faith essentially uh it's his daughter dying and saying uh am i gonna die mommy daddy what's gonna happen to me and mom saying you're gonna go to heaven so look forward to that right and and the daughter saying dad is that is that true and him saying he's like yeah yes. baby but in his eyes you're like he doesn't believe that and that's potentially the first moment in his life that he didn't believe that right because of the daughter right. dying uh classic classic uh loss of faith stuff 
Um, and then it shows him fighting with the mom later saying, I should have done more instead of just feeding her bullshit. So he's completely lost his belief. Yeah, I like that. That's one of the things that I've, it's one of the better like uh, agnostic arguments that I've heard in like crisis of faith stories mm -hmm. is that he's like, specifically, it's not that I'm just filling your head with lies because I don't believe them. I It's not just that I believe that they're lies, but it's that making her believe those things that everything was going to be okay made her not fight want less. to fight. Yeah. And so we really do see why he's a skeptic because he believes that it's a damaging worldview. And that's mm -hmm. an interesting, you don't see that a lot. Usually it's just like, I don't believe it. So there, that's just who I am now. Um, this one has a compelling argument as to why he would lose his faith. Um, so right. That. You believe you're, it's safer if you live without faith because then you won't be disappointed and you'll be prepared for life's trickeries. But then also, as the room pointed out, if you have no faith, then you're consigned to living with the belief that your daughter is gone and doesn't live on and you can't ever communicate with her right. ever again. Uh, and that's a heavy burden to bear. Um, it's also yeah. a very cold uh, point of view and segue. The room is now freezing uh, completely covered in looks frost. exactly like the set deck from the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode "Naked Now," <laughs> where the, the room gets all frosted yeah. over. And mm -hmm. as he points out immediately, it's a Dante's Inferno reference. Uh, so maybe the, the room's a demon from hell. Who knows? Hell. Yeah. Because famously, the last circle of uh, hell's all fiery, but the bottom circle of hell's actually frozen. Because uh, I guess that's worse. I don't know. Dante just wanted to mix it up. So he bundles up mm -hmm. and makes a fire and he gets drunk and he raves into his tape deck about how I've reached the bottom level of hell. What could come next? You know, but he actually starts to seem as if he's going insane because some of the stuff he says legitimately makes no sense. Um, and then he's snapped out of it by the fact that Lily appears on reappears on his frozen laptop. Uh, for whatever reason, the room made it work. I don't care. Yeah. Um, she says the cops are there at the dolphin. This, man, this actually gave me a chill. I, this is, it's classic. It's the same as, but she died 10 years ago, but it's so well deployed. But who was phone? But who was, she does a who was phone. She says, uh, the cops are here and he goes, send them up. And she goes, no, I mean, they're in room 1408. There's no one there. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was dope. What does that mean? Yeah. Are, am I on another plane? Yeah. What and is then this? she says, I'm coming there. And he goes, no, don't come here. It wants you. Don't. Like it wants victims. Don't come here. And then instead on the computer, the little image of him is controlled by the room and says, yes, please come here. That's great. Lily, I love you. I'm sorry I walked out. Come we're here right now. We're going to talk about all the stuff you want. And we're going to reconcile. Yeah. You come here now. So now his new goal is, right, he's, uh, oh, by the way, we've reached acceptance. So he says, I'm going to die, right? No one makes it out, but mm -hmm. I'm going to save Lily. Like, li that's his new goal is just to prevent Lily from coming somehow. Prevent the room yeah. from winning another time. Yeah. Um, the room and then, won't have that, so it starts to flood. So it blows up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just straight up blows up itself, explodes its walls so that it can begin to rain indoors uh, and like basically it's filling up the room with water. Cusack drinks and pours the bottle of booze on himself, which mm -hmm. I thought was just a funny instinct by an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and he tries to attack the painting of the ship at one point because he's also trying to wreck up the place. And 
when he hits that wall with the uh, with the painting of the ship, water blasts out of the wall. Basically, now he's at sea and he's drowning, which we've heard before is the main methodology in which uh, most people die in this room. So we kind of get that you know cadence of like, oh, maybe this is all of ha- has happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he is he slips into the depths, closes his eyes, darkness envelops us, and then he wakes up and he's back at the beginning of the film where he was surfing and he had his incident in LA with the rogue wave. And he, uh, and he like coughs up some water. A guy says, Hey, are you okay, buddy? And, uh, this is before he even got the postcard for the dolphin. And it's the exact same footage. It's shot for shot. Literally same footage. Yeah. So we're meant to believe that this was all a dream. Um, because Lily is now at his bed and we are getting new scenes where it's that he was hurt by this surfing incident, went to the hospital. Lily was the uh, next of kin, flew from New York to L.A. to see if he was OK because he almost died. And she says, I never even heard of the hotel when he mentions it. And then life goes on for a bit, which is a really strange thing because Mike starts to see people yeah. from his experience in the room and he kind of does a double take meaning he remembers in fact he seems to remember everything and all the events from the room and up to it, that point and they process uh, their shit as a couple and Lily says well the room was it was probably a crazy concussion nightmare the room is right. your subconscious and it showed you stuff that you're trying to process because you feel guilty about that stuff and I'm here for you right. and we're going to work through it and he's right. like, well, that's and, good. Uh, this seems and good. He also, <laughs> this seems good. And like, yeah, that's believable. And mm-hmm. Lily mentions that he should write about their dead daughter, which I find kind of pretty weird. And he writes a but, piece about his his nightmare and how it helped him yeah. start to come to terms with his daughter's death. So this is all okay. Yeah. And then he picks up the mail like the last time, right? Like where he would get the dolphin. I postcard. believe he's going to mail his manuscript to his agent. It's like, done. Yeah. yeah. So he's. He's he's over his daughter's death officially. (laughs) Yeah. So he picks up his mail like the last time, but he knows that he should be expecting a postcard. And this is where I go. What does he think time and causality is at this point? Does he think he's a time traveler? Like he if he's completely accepting the new reality, why would he expect a postcard? Isn't that fiction or is it real? So because there's no dolphin, so why would he think that there is uh, a postcard? He knows the future. I didn't think. I, he, I thought just, he was just mailing his manuscript. I didn't get the postcard. No, no, he has. Liter- remember, he has, he like looks under. He like double checks it when he uh, he goes back oh, to the person who's the clerk, and he's like, "Well, when, the main thing is the find clerk a postcard. Is, the clerk is the bellboy from the hotel. But, That's yeah. what makes it all fall apart. Yeah, yeah. There's a few scenes right before that because he does come back to the uh, to the post office. The only important things in that interstitial kind of uh, stuff is that. He does himself some legwork for the Dolphin Hotel, finds out it doesn't exist. He says he's got an idea for a book and he begins writing again, calls up Tony Shalhoub and tells him that he's putting together pieces of his life, talking to Lily, reconnecting with his dad, writing something creative. 
But then he returns to the post office again, and this is where he's actually mailing the manuscript. And he realizes that all the workers are people from inside the dolphin, kind of like, um, you know, Wizard of Oz scenario. And they start acting strange and start ripping apart the post office. They say it's broken down, but they start like vigorously attacking the walls. And as the walls are being removed uh, and whatnot, it's revealed that it's still inside the hotel room 1408. Ah, it was what we all expected. It was a great big ruse. Uh, but now the 1408 looks like it's burned down. There's been signals in the room that like at one point on uh, on brick, it's written like burn me alive or something like that. Uh, there's been signals that the room wants to burn them alive. And one of the final kind of uh, notices of this is that the cupboard opens and inside the cupboard, just like tiny little Samuel, there's a tiny little coffin uh inside and it's in a furnace and it's burning and he's like is that my daughter in there uh and he uh it is and so he sees and talks to his like ghost daughter uh and he says you're not my daughter and he falls to his knees and cries and then they embrace and then he accepts that she's his daughter and says we're gonna be great we're gonna be fine and all live together and it's gonna be great and then she dies in his hands and turns into dust. So it's pretty, uh, pretty fucked up room. Um, and then he rips up the place like a rock star, just like kicking the whole joint around. Uh, and he finally falls to uh, exhausted. He falls to the ground and he sees the clock, the countdown clock, and he's got 15 seconds left. Counts down to zero. And we're back in what appears to be reality. The room is back to normal and unburnt. The 60 minute countdown has now started over. The room, which is chilling me because then, of course, your immediate thought is, oh, that's the end oh, of the movie. And yet this is another yes. fake out. But they want you to at least consider, oh, he's going to be trapped in it as a loop eternally. That's the as hell of yep. the room. Nope. But they wanted yeah. you to think that for a minute. <laughs> in they, they want it on the table because the room right. in, a, in the as as the phone, like the only way in which we actually we do get Samuel L. in that as a tiny little man. But the only other way we have any interaction or communication with the room is through this receptionist. Uh, the receptionist says that you, he can relive this hour forever or he can kill himself. Um, well, basically that specifically, the the, I mean, I just like that. It's said in the hotel way. Yeah. Um, you have free will, Mr. Anslin. You can stay with us for as long as you'd like or employ our express checkout system. <laughs> Right. There's always my way out, and then they my pan over to a noose. It's very Disneyland uh, yeah, they haunted mansion. Gave him a little noose. That's um, pretty cool. He even looks in the mirror and he sees his reflection fade away. Uh, like, yeah, I'm not even There's, here, man. Uh, the, the, room, <laughs> sees, the room shows him graves. The room of shows his daughter him an open him. grave with his tombstone on it, which um, is kind of like all right. The room slides him a note that says, "Get it, knucklehead. You should die." Um, you like should it's die. very yeah. It's as emphatic as it can and be. And I love. Uh, what he does, he picks up the phone. And he says, and he no, says "No, I will not you. be killing myself today." I will not be today. checking out. Well, he says, "Not Thank your you way." Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, not your way. But then the but, room uh, says, "Okay, oh, good to hear that." By the way, uh, your what? wife will be here any minute. We'll send her right up, motherfucker. <laughs> and then the phone starts to melt. And one of the cooler special effects, uh, practical. I guess it's not practical because it's composited. They but if you read about stuff. how they did it, it's very complex. But it's it was a pain. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The phone melts. And uh, 
and the phone melts, which, yeah, that's, that's well saying that threatening that nonsense that I did find very uncanny. That is word for word from the short story. So it's like, uh, it says stuff like six, this is six. All friends are dead. Every friend has been killed. This is nine, nine. And like, as it melts, it's pretty creepy. Yeah. It's pretty creepy. Classic melting phone stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he then makes a Molotov cocktail out of the Samuel L. Jackson booze and uh, th- throws it against the wall now and then yells, go to hell. And he lights his reminder cigarette and he thinks he, he's just going to die in the fire. And this is where we should probably talk about the multiple endings. I watched the one where he burns the place down, the director's cut, the one that they initially showed, but then test audiences thought it was too, too much of a downer. Uh, so they made other options and the director's cut answer, uh, the director's cut ending goes like this, uh, as he's, he's burning, he throws the Molotov cocktail and he yells, he awards the dolphin 10 skulls, which is kind of his rating system. Yeah. (laughs) His rating system. Uh, and then he dies and then we flash forward to, uh, the, his funeral where Tony Schlub's there, uh, you know, like Lily's there. Samuel L. Jackson arrives and gives Lily some of his belongings uh, or attempts to give uh, a box that all the belongings that survived the fire. She refuses it. Samuel L. tells her that the room is dead and thank you. And he and like Cusack did a great thing. She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is upsets her. I have no clue what you're talking about or what it means. So he like bails, goes back to his car, listens to the tape recorder and he hears Katie, the daughter's voice on it. Ghost and voice. he realizes uh, afterlife yeah, is real. There's a proof. Afterlife Boom. is real. Yeah. yeah. He's like, okay, here's proof. Uh, and then he had double take. He sees in the backseat of his car, Mike's burned face. Uh, and then he disappears. And then he looks in his rear view mirror and sees a man and a daughter walk into a graveyard at a distance. And later, Mike is walking around a burned room. He is a ghost. I have no clue where it's supposed to be, but we get the, the feeling that is, that's they it. are reunited in heaven. They they do. are reunited in They're the room together again. Yeah, or in hell, yeah. wherever they are, <laughs> wherever they are. And yeah. that's the ending of the director's cut. What? Which one did you watch? Did you watch oh, the director's cut? As so well? that's interesting. They vary widely, by the way, depending on the streaming service you watch them on. Like, there's still not a consensus. Different DVDs have different endings. Different Blu-rays have different endings. Mm-hmm. Um, um, lots of different endings on this sucker. The one I happened to see was uh, he lives through the fire because, uh, of course, that's the major change you make when test audiences don't like something is you're like, OK, the hero lives, I guess. That's usually the tweak you make. So he lives. Uh, he and Lily patch things up. Uh, he plays the tape recorder for her. She hears Katie's voice and with tears in her eyes, she gasps and drops what she was holding and then it's credits. So I guess the implication is just like now they know the afterlife is real. I wonder what they'll do with that information. There's also an ending we should note where the exact same thing happens, but Lily doesn't hear it. It's just a moment for him alone. But that's a really weird ending because why wouldn't he then share that with his wife, like the knowledge that their daughter is okay? Um, So the other ending like makes more logical sense. I think that's Mm -hmm. all of them. Um, And then there's one final ending. There's also a scene thrown in where Olin is just in his office alone and says, good job, Mr. Enslin. Well done, (laughs) which is very pointless. But what? And then there's a fourth one. Yeah. What's the fourth one? Well, it's just it's uh, instead of a funeral scene after he burns down the room, 
the funeral is uh, dubbed over audio-wise over shots of Los Angeles. I haven't seen this one. This is just off of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. uh, Lillian Sam sort through his uh, effects. Uh, Sam returns to New York office, and that's where he discovers a manuscript that Mike wrote when he was in room 1408. And as he starts reading the story, a story, the audio from uh, Mike's experiences, in the room is heard. And then uh, the office door shut. And Mike's father's voice says, as you are, I was, as I am, you will be. Yeah. That's nothing. Which, that's not that's even on nothing. theme. <laughs> it's not even on theme. It's just a way to do more spookies. Yeah. And it's also like all the wrong characters. Like, why is Sam involved? Right. Why is Mike's father involved? These are not they the have no emotional like points charge. of the story. They haven't invested in them. Yeah. yeah. They're kind of there to lay up the other, like Lily and mm -hmm. Olin. You know, like those are the actual characters that matter. Um, but anyway. Olin Lenson Lynn. They all have that's a lot of E's and N's and L's and O's in their names. Um, anyway, yeah, that's mm. definitely, if I'm at that point, that's definitely under the dome. Uh, let's yes. get into our next segment where we talk about the creative team behind it. Any interesting behind-the-scenes trivia we may have unearthed while we were poking around talking about 1408. This is Skeleton Crew! Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! Shake your bones, it's the Skeleton Crew. Shake your bones. Shake your bones if you got them. Uh, yeah, so I, as I will talk about more in it, I don't, I'm not familiar with this creative team. Uh, There's, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not super well known for creating um, Stephen King shorts. Um, the director. Right. Uh, Michael Hofstrom. Um, is a Swedish director who had uh, who created in 2003, 2003 had there's a Swedish drama called Evil. He got on the map for that. Oh, Evil is really that kind of get okay. Yeah, he kind of got on the map for that and had a few directorial projects the next few years, including this one. Um, he's all he also then uh. He uh, made uh, three other films after this, Shanghai, The Right Escape Plan. So he did some horror, but mostly it's psychological, mostly it's drama. It's not exactly in his wheelhouse. So that's also, though, one of the reasons. And if you listen to the director piece theater that Adam just did uh, based on directors like this, like people who are dramatists or, you know, typically directors of drama, um, directing horror movies create these very interesting uh kind of i think it's like the key to psychological horror this is not a very spooky film i mean you could argue there's very spooky moments but there's definitely no blood and gore in what you'd expect from what this like poster looks like yeah it makes it look like even the visuals make you think that you're going to be seeing ghosts a lot which you do but mostly it's just ghosts standing there or saying what their problem is so it's definitely the creative team is a more nuanced and slightly different than what we're used to, you know, with the Tobe Hoopers and such, um, where they're yeah. just full on, let's just go for it. Um, he also did five this, episodes of Bloodline. So I guess I do know his work, but the end of my initial thought mm -hmm. was just that not being familiar, at least at the name level with the director, uh, mm -hmm. he's quite good. And I think speaking to what you just said, 
Um, it's, it's literally, the premise is literally haunted house in the most literal sense in which you can take that more literal than most haunted house movies are. Cause most haunted house movies are actually what some wags have dubbed monster in the house, right? It's not the house itself. It's that there's a monster with you in the house and the monster is very good at navigating the environment and somehow owns that environment. But, uh, this is literally is the environment it's home alone with no Kevin. It's just the house. It's the yeah. burglars versus the house and the house is fucking you up. Um, the house is winning at all times. And of yeah, course I almost wanna, well, yeah. sorry. I just want to say that's smart and, uh, I'm sure helped it get made because a, it really appeals to John Cusack. It appeals to your, uh, your named actor because they're going to get to, shoot something that is not incredibly rigorous in the sense that you're not doing stunts flying all over the world, but it's rigorous in terms of how the range of emotion you get to express, right? Uh, John Cusack makes a Mm -hmm. feast of this character's arc and that's, I'm sure appealed to him. And then it appeals to everyone down the line making the movie because there's like three locations. It's one of those movies. It's almost It's interesting because I think it gets away with you feeling it's more expansive than it is because a hotel room is a place we've all been and we, and he's trapped and that's part of it. And you accept that. But in a way it's as simple as cube or tin can, like it's let's get this person in this box, Mm -hmm. the end. Um, So I do think as you just sort of explained uh, what the director has to do and does quite well, it doesn't have to like, I think, you know, they they do the right thing, which is taking he calls it the banality of evil. He mentions that. And I think that's sort of a guiding light for the craftsmanship of this film is uh, they realized, well, it's just a hotel room and there's no there are ghosties. But like you said, it's not like Pennywise. There's not a character that embodies the room. So how can we make the banal feel evil? And the answer is you have to master in an encyclopedic way all the right sound cues and ways to set up the camera and ways to light the scene that make the audience feel tense, even though everything is banal and the movie Mm. just very, it's not like an impossible feat, uh, but the film is very scrupulous at accomplishing that moment to moment. Even when nothing is happening, you feel like something could happen Mm. any second at all times. And uh, there's subtlety in that. The movie feels transparent while you're watching it. But like a, a thing that really stood out to me was when he gets up from the ground they and looks at the door uh, and sees the fire escape plan that's mocking him. They use his blocking as an excuse for a POV shot where the camera fully spirals yes. while it's lifting up. Um, that's a pretty creepy, cool, disorienting shot. And they found a way to make it make diegetic sense as a POV shot. And yet they know that that's a classic horror shot. It's almost like how Deadstream earns Sam Raimi shots by attaching cameras to shit within the plot. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's also, I like this director. I think he's quite good. <laughs> then, yeah. And you spoke of lighting and I wanted to talk briefly about that. And that's really all I have for the sequence, but I wanted to talk about the director of photography and his role and why sometimes director of photography is important and why, I mean, it's always important to the, the film, but like in hindsight, when you look at it, it's like, why did they choose this director of photography? There's a particular reason. Uh, the director of photography in this, uh, uh, film is Benoit Dahome, who is a French filmmaker, um, Worked on a lot of stuff in his life, and he is really well known for uh, kind of sleight of hand tricks 
on lighting, making spaces look like other spaces. And that is definitely the wheelhouse of this where it's like, okay, we everything, almost everything in this movie is taking uh, place in one literal room, uh, much like, you know, other films like Locke and Buried and such like that. They don't have those films which rely upon action to kind of propel the length, the, the banality uh, and make it more interesting. As you mentioned, uh, this one has the kind of the more uh, supernatural aspect of it, where it can literally be the same space, but completely differently lit. The uh, uh, homes kind of got a good, like what he, he mostly works in independent film and that's where I kind of knew him. Like he's his first film he made is the Santa green papaya, which is a Vietnamese film. Amazing to look at. Uh, but people probably know him from, uh, he made the proposition, which is an Australian film. Uh, in fact, he got an award for cemetery for that, for that. And that's a Western. Uh, he also made Shanghai with Michael Hoff, Hofstrom, which is another good film and very beautiful. Lawless is a film that he made in 2012 with Tom Hardy and such. So he, he doesn't work all the time in like American cinema. This is one of the fir first times he actually did so. But he's very well known in the circuits of cinematographers as a guy who is very good with kind of just lighting simple shots to trick your eye. And I think that that's why they went with him for this because they had to take one space and make it look interesting in 45 different ways, but also do the same thing where I need to also disappear it and you still need to know grounded where exactly you are. So while geography and, you know, like what's happening in the movie is always dictated by the story and the director, the lighting needs to kind of have this overall point of view uh, where it basically is like these, this is how I'm still going to make you believe it's not a completely different scene, but completely drastically change um, the colors, the lighting and the look of the frame in a single shot. How can I do both at the same time? And that's why they got this guy. This guy knows how to do that uh, and it's, and he's good at it. So here we are. Uh, it's another reason why I think this movie really does shine uh, is it doesn't really have to worry about geography as much because if he's just laying on the ground of a hotel floor with the same, you know, like carpet, you kind of know where he is. Right. Um, so that's kind of all I needed to talk about with uh, skeleton crew. Do you got anything else for this section? Yeah, I got trivia. Uh, Hit us and I think it will it. inform what I'm going to talk about in it. Uh, you mentioned, I believe you interpreted it as a cupboard with a little coffin burning inside, or and maybe mm -hmm. we're talking about different images, but I interpreted it slightly differently. And IMDb trivia page agrees with me for what it's worth, which is that the uh, the doorway that appears in the middle of the room that he opens, and then there's a black void. Uh, I right. interpreted that as the room doing a cruel joke about how this is the door to the afterlife. Surprise, there's nothing, uh, which I like. Whether it's intentionally no, means like that, that yeah. or not, I think that's cool. Um, yeah. It's never revealed who sent Mike the postcard that originally brought him here. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it matters, but I like the idea that there's only real two, really two possibilities and both are kind of neat. One is that the room sent it because the room obviously can do quite a bit of magic and control of reality. So maybe the room sends sent it to get a victim or uh, maybe Olin sent it, suspecting that this dude with his long history of being 
uh, you know, of, of staying in haunted rooms might be the one guy who could destroy it. Uh, otherwise, there's no really good candidate for why he got that postcard. And I do think it's yeah. interesting to look back and go, huh, oh, the movie never does. There's no, <laughs> there's no like uh, other end of that thread. Um, as I said, there's like a million references to the number 13. I'll just say that. It's more than I want to go through. They're kind of dumb. But it's like every number that you see anywhere on anything, male, you know, things in the background, they all add up to 13 or R13. Uh, and I only bring that up for what I'm going to say in it. Uh, he also, there's also a lot of foreshadowing in this, which I think is structurally interesting, but I mean, simple foreshadowing. So when he enters the room, he says, where's the bone chilling horror? Where are the rivers of blood? Then he gets a chill and then there's a blood from the wall, right? So, uh, yeah. stuff like that. There's other maneuvers like that. I won't actually call them all out. Cause they're all basically like that. Someone says a line and you're like, oh yeah, that happens. It's almost later. always like expected at this point to have, like, if you have a skeptic walking inside, like anywhere and being skeptical mm -hmm. and then just says, what are you going to do this? What are you going to stab That's me? Right. <laughs> you know, like, and to that yeah. point, he says the room's on fire and he sees graffiti on the bricks that says, burn me alive. Right. So there's, it's like almost like the room wants to be cut. I want to talk about that in it as well. Uh, why does the room mm. keep projecting things that will obviously make him think of, Oh, I could burn it. Uh, but, but anyway, that's there. Dabda, we mentioned, uh, so, oh, the last two are actually really cool. So I'll say both. One is that the booze that Olin gives Mike is called Les 57 Décès, which translates from French to the 57 deaths. And then he says 56 people have died in the room. So of course. And so he's the 57. Mike is 57. And, uh, last but not least, prop trivia, uh, the axe that the fireman uses to break down the hotel door at the end of the movie is literally physically the axe from The Shining. The Shining. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes. And the movies were it's shot so at funny. the same studio, so they used the same prop warehouse. It's so funny. Several times in this movie, I'm like, ah, that's kind of cliche. It's like they're doing a Stephen King. Oh, <laughs> you know, like I do that a lot on this podcast it's... when I'm watching these movies because he's, he's grabbing yeah. low-hanging fruit, so it feels cliche, but it's is it cliche if you're like quoting yourself? Not uh, not in the same way. I would say. Well, know, Misery like has an alcoholic tra writer trapped in one location. Shining has right. a writer succumbing to drink and going insane because of a hotel. And uh, I believe there's another one that came to mind. But regardless, you get it. Like, yeah, this one is legit. A mishmash of elements he's done before. It's not not that. It for sure is. It's not not that. And yeah. I don't know. And I mean, it's almost this, it I'd too. Say this, the demon has the same yeah. feeling as Pennywise to me. Well, speaking of. Oh. Uh, oh, that's right. We go into our next segment, It, where we s discuss some scene work, some themes, symbolism, and whatever the hell we want to. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. But not information technologies. It's not the IT segment. This is not the IT uh, segment. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I don't it bounce, you know, last in, first out. So because it's fresh. Uh, yeah. What does the what does the room want? If anything, um, the best I could cobble together is very similar to Pennywise, ultimately, because it seems to it wants your blood. It wants to kill you. Right. It collects souls or something. Mm -hmm. But it also wants, it's not just that or it would kill you. So it must want Pennywise style to feed off 
and emotion. Fear. I would say the tweak yeah. is Pennywise is fear specifically, and he tends to do specific like standard spooky stuff, like a giant spider is scary, a clown with sharp teeth is scary in the traditional sense. Um, this thing wants to traumatize and bum you out. It's like a downer room. <laughs> it specifically yeah. wants your sadness, regret, guilt, you to think you're a piece of shit. It's like a self-loathing room. I think it feeds off that more. Yes. Um, it definitely, yeah, kind of, or in a way like the desperation kind of concept, um, like the movie desperation. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely has this feeling and vibe of being cosmic of some kind. It can displace reality and do that. Here's the only thing that I'd say, because I agree with you almost entirely, but even it has a personality. Things are fun for him. He eats the kids and that's something that and he takes. And delight that's nice in for it. him. And that's nice for, for him. him. And he, that seems to power him <laughs> up. I'm not saying that it's not enough for us to say the room wants souls and getting and accumulating ghosts is kind of like what its deal is. But it's interesting to me that like the room itself, which had opportunities to be like personified via phone, via, you know, creating um, not just ghosts, but like uh, amalgams of people that he knew, tiny, tiny, cute little Samuel Jackson uh, mouthpieces. Uh, and there is no real voice to the room. Uh, Interesting. It seems to want to hide. Not right? a voice per se, but I do get a feeling of its deal from right. the trick's style of pranks it chooses to pull. And I've right. said on this podcast, I think, uh, that my favorite form of devil or demon is not the one that wants to oogie boogie you. It's this. I love this. Mm -hmm. uh, the vibe I get from this devil is that they're a petty asshole. And I like the, I think the most upsetting, it's almost like an interchange online where you get so wrapped up in your anger and frustration around some smug mm -hmm. asshole being dumb at you in a way that you're like, no, you're wrong. Just fucking listen to me. Um, so I love that the, and the vibe I get from the room is that the room uh, hates you. It thinks you're disgusting scum. And uh, therefore it thinks you deserve all this horrible shit. And it's very specific horrible shit like it's pointed. It's the kind of stuff that you would say to a family member or loved one, you know, really well that you're fighting with. Right. It doesn't go, uh, you know, it would be scary if I turn into a giant ogre and beat you to death or ripped your arm off. Yeah. I it's scary mm -hmm. to anyone, but you know, it would be scary to Mike Enslund specifically. I bring your daughter who died of cancer back to life and then she dies again. Uh, you're like, okay, yeah, that's tailored specifically to me. You're a prick mm -hmm. room. <laughs> And that's why he reacts that. appropriately. I love that their relationship by the end is he's, uh, it's not, oh my God, we got to kill Pennywise or the world is doomed. It's, I fucking hate this room. This room is a piece of shit. <laughs> this room is a piece of shit. I a hundred percent agree. And I do think it's scarier when you get like, uh, a God who seems like they're not mean. Even... Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what's, it's just interesting that they gave it a voice and it ref and it refuses to have a kind of dis disposition. What I like or what why I think that the disposition is kind of critical or like a, uh, generically 
uh, a part of our horror myths, like Pennywise taking delight in eating children, uh, is that you can see their flaws, right? You can, if the second that you make them more human, you give them a voice, they can suddenly be caught monologuing or they can be petty or they can want to talk about a topic too much. These things can be considered flaws and like kind of vulnerabilities in the armor. Um, there is no vulnerability to a godlike presence that only just has a goal and just churns the fucking button. And can warp reality, uh, yeah. Yeah, and just warps reality, which is what this thing seems to do. It just... It does seem to take delight. It does seem to be a, 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 a you know piece of shit mm -hmm. uh, and petty, um, but that's only in context of why it keep it does these things continuously and just doesn't stop. Um, so that's so weird. That's our read on it, yeah. Or that's our read rather on the room, um, which is just interesting to me because usually Stephen King answers that for us, tells us how to perceive. Uh, you know, I do love the villains. idea of how straightforward a storytelling challenge it is, much like the Mangler is very, what a challenge is uh, basically the challenge before yourself. If you're Stephen King for this is what if there is a room that they say is haunted and a guy tells you this room's super haunted. It goes really hard from jump. And then you stepped into the room mm -hmm. and the room went really hard from jump. And that's the whole story. And then like exactly what they said would happen happens to you. <laughs> Rolodex the game. Yeah. And that's the structure. That's, that's different it. from. That's all we have. That's different from any other Stephen King, really. Yeah. Um, I remember you said something. <clears throat> I can't remember if it was on podcast or just to me. But you said once that one of your favorite Marvel movies is Iron Man 3, because at a certain point in Act 3 in that movie, it's basically true to what you believe is its essence, which is let's just make up a bunch of cool different suits and show them off. Mm -hmm. This to me, this movie is that for Haunted Knows what rooms. it is, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, let's do all of the haunted things in one movie. Um, let's not choose the three or four and then, you know, like pick our good dramatic moments for it. Let's just literally hit every type of haunting. Um, the only type of haunting we don't get actually is the ghoulies crawling up the, uh, you know, like the ring stuff, like crawling around and stuff like that. Because I think that this kind of predates that trope becoming the wider trope that we utilize. Like you can't draw a line uh, you, to me, you have to draw a line from like something like the ring or the grudge all the way to like the nun that just came out, you know, like it's all the same shit. I'm not well, knocking that it yeah. is a trope. It shouldn't exist or saying that I'm just saying these are the same. Yes. Uh, they are, they're built out of the same. Structurally. It's and it's actually dates back to, I think of all genres it has. I'm not trying to be pre yeah. pretentious, but I just am by nature. I think it has the most in common with classic Greek tragedy, uh, which is mm -hmm. kind of something we don't do because from modern standards, it's something of a limp, downery structure in the sense that modern Greek tragedy and the ring go as follows. Someone tells you there are things in life beyond your power and this one wants to destroy you and it's going to. And from what I see here, you can't avoid it. Then there's glimmers of hope that maybe you will avoid it, but you don't. The end. So that's a Greek tragedy. It's also the ring. It's also the grudge. And I got to say, yep. uh, like I just saw Smile, which is that 
uh, and I find that that structure is really hard to make uh, crunchy or what's a better word? Engaging. Like to feel yeah. moment to moment exciting. Because once I realized Smile was going in that direction, I was like, oh, okay. So all of these exactly these dolls the rules are going of to be horror destroyed. that they laid out are going to happen. I get it. Um, and yeah. so often that makes me lose interest in the back half of the movie. This one, because it's a Rolodex, I was genuinely interested in, right, but what is the room going to do specifically? Oh, it takes away all mm -hmm. the windows. That's very devilish. What a cheeky room. Like, the journey right. is fun enough that it's that it, it separates itself, I think, from other tragedy-like horror movies where you just feel that inevitability. Like, I would compare right. it favorably to Drag Me to Hell. That was another movie where ultimately exactly what they said would happen happens, but in the meantime, they successfully convinced me maybe it won't happen. A bunch of fun stuff is happening, you know? Yeah, maybe you'll get out of this. Yeah, yeah you, your hope kind of persists. It's a, definitely a downer as well of like, I think there's enough exposure to the main character development of like his you know his dead daughter and his you know estranged uh marriage but it's not that engaged like i wish there was a better cooler story there because that is kind of cliche a little bit uh and important to note that not in the written short but it's stories enough so the written short story is really short it is enough i agree completely basically when they I think this deserves credit specifically as an adaptation because they took a story that Mike Enslin had no B-plot. He had no ex-wife. He had no daughter. He had no emotional catharsis. It was just the premise of creepy room. He gets creeped out. He goes insane, almost like a Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. But to make it a film, they had to fluff it up. How do you fluff it up? You have to give the character an arc. They decided on a, a deep regret around a dead loved one. As Abe said, that is not original. It's almost Shyamalan-esque in like you just threw at a dartboard of classic arcs and gave it to him. But there's like four of them. Yeah. You could have picked worse. It's fine. It's enough. You get, it's, it's enough. And that's the thing is that for the Rolodex to exist, you kind of that's what makes it kind of a mediocre movie, but it's still a fun movie to watch. And I don't know about you in terms of it, but like I, I'm ready to kind of stack this up against the other ones. Uh, I want to say one more thing. So I give it credit as an adaptation for that reason. Yeah, it. It. I feel like they added. Yeah. So since we're knocking it and we're gonna grade it now, my my point is, if anything's wrong with it, I think it's the it's still the back half, and it's that some of the hauntings I think go too far in being a little too obvious and a little too straightforward. The uncanny hauntings in the first half are much more effective to me. And I think it all speaks to the idea that the film is just slightly less subtle and tactful than movies I like. So they do do things where I roll my eyes a little like Olin saying, your deal is you're a cynic and you're upset about your dead daughter. So you don't believe in God. Okay. I like, I get it. You know, the expository, the exposition dump is more than just exposition. It's a dressing down where they literally tell you what the character's inner deal is. And I don't like being mm. told what the character's inner deal is. You're supposed to show that. I'm supposed to get that through inference. It feels much better. Um, the idea, simple things, like the idea that they think it's a cool structural element to put a bunch of 13s in the movie. Eh, it's not really anything to me. And it the movie sort of- much. 
falls yeah. into that where I'm like, you know what you're doing. Your instincts are right about the basics of what you need, but it's not like mind blowing from moment to moment. There's a lot of stuff where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 13 creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dabda. But Dabda's not even real. So like, who cares? You know, there's right. stuff that feels just kind of arbitrary and obvious. And then towards the second half, I think as evidenced by the fact that there's four endings, like third acts are hard. Endings are hard. And I do think the movie, the third act is way less notable than the rest of it. There are amazing fake outs, but they're way too long. Like as an editor, you can't justify to me. I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to go so long with the fake out that we buy it so that the fake out hits. But you went even longer than that. The sequence, you know, the sequence, I mean, where he thinks everything's fine and it was all a dream, a surfing dream. Right. That goes on. It's objectively too long. And I think the third act feels like that generally, like they're a little more meandering, a little more taking swings, don't know exactly what they're doing. And then the end, they're like. Well, what are the horror endings? I don't know. He dies. He doesn't die. There is Katie. There isn't Katie. So it's like that to There's me only... speaks of you didn't have a vision that speak that that your stirs your soul. You saw a story you wanted to make. You thought you could adapt it in a way that was useful and competent, and you did. And you made a great vehicle for John Cusack to fucking have fun and nail a performance. Like I think he's great in this. I he thinks he's. I, I think he's actually pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, this, this movie moves, uh, it, it doesn't keeps, waste your it wraps time. your attention. Yeah. It doesn't waste your time. And I watched the director's cut and I have all the feelings that Michael has, which is essentially this drags at the end be when they're trying to bring back the, you know, like meaningful character detail stuff. But like, it was still worth the price of admission because that act two, just of the Rolodex of like him trying to figure out what, how do I get the fuck out of here? Uh, is so compelling and done so well. It's actually hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a better movie in terms of like just the fun and games trying to get out of their situation than this movie. It really follows that to a T. Um, And that's kind of where we'll make our stand. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the next thing. The stay. This is where we just rate. Everything we've covered so far, uh, we could do it season by season, but instead we're just doing it all together, all, all inclusive, which makes it a very long segment. Um, we're nine, no, we're twenty deep. This is our twentieth episode, so this is the twentieth episode. We're gonna see where this. Which, falls. if you add two and zero together, <laughs> it's thirteen. Two. <laughs> uh, season two. It's all. Oh, I see. Coming together. Yeah. No, all right, so we're ranking this this baby. Um, should we start at the bottom or the top? What do you think? I think we're going to be probably, my guess is that you've put it in the middle of the road. So I'm going to say it doesn't matter. Okay. Then I like to guess where you're going to put it. So let's start at the bottom. Let's start at the bottom. I think the worst Uh, one is Salem's Lot 1979, number 20. And I I slightly disagree. Uh, It's a terrible movie, but so is Maximum Overdrive. That's number 19 for me, Maximum Overdrive. See, that's where I put The Mangler. Because that's also a terrible movie. It's real bad, but not as bad as my number 18, Green Mile. Worse than yeah. The Mangler. I first big disagree. Uh, I'm still listening. <laughs> Green Mile is a mediocre movie to me. It's not as bad as Dreamcatcher. Oh, Dreamcatcher slightly better than Green Mile. It's my 17. 
See, without Green Mile, that's where I put Salem's Lot. So, like, we're basically agree with the bottom four. Just well, not about know. Green Mile. Yeah. Not about Green that's Mile. That's the aberrant. Okay. My 16s, Children of the Corn. We're still in bad territory. Yep. I'm going with thinner. That's more boring territory, to yeah. be honest. Speaking of boring, number 15, Desperation. <laughs> Yep, that's uh, now we're getting into the bigger disagreements because this is where I put Dark Tower, which I believe you're not going to you placed up high, fairly high, which does suck because it's real bad. Um, But (laughs) 14s where I dropped the Mangler, which I found oddly compelling and watchable, even though it is bad. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's a little high. I get it. I get it. 14 for me is the dead zone. Another thinner, like just boring, boring. just boring. Yeah. 13 for me mm. is the classic it TV series from the nineties, which frankly, very much disappointed me on a second watch. <laughs> Not as good and as I recall. And it's bizarre that in the spookiest number of all 13, we seem to agree that 1990s <laughs> it is where it belongs. It's exactly a 13, 12 dead zone. Mm-hmm. Boring. Yeah, Children of the Corn kind of got some things, but yeah. boring. Children of the Born, boring. 11, thinner. <laughs> you know, this is where I put Christine, and I'm probably going to regret it because oh. I do love John Carpenter. I just hate the idea of cars and fucking laundry machines. It's stupid. Being... But I actually <laughs> I so liked stupid. Christine as a film, even though. And haunted car is stupid. You're like, you shouldn't get away with that. It shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't get away with it. Uh, but you know what? We're yeah. entering our top 10. Top 10, That's baby. That's where they go. So the first, so the worst of the best half. So slightly better than average, I guess. Number 10, Running Man. Yeah. Wow. I'm going desperation because I did like the, uh, the, the, the symbolism of the lore. Tack. Um, uh, number nine. Christine, that haunted car driving into my heart. Mm. Number nine for me, and I have to gonna gonna have to take a long look as to why I put it here. The Green Mile. I don't seem to, I didn't <laughs> seem to factor in all of the horrible racism and uh, things that you brought up in that episode. Definitely check that out for Mike dunking on the movie Green Mile. Yes, I earned many woke points that day because it's not overt racism; it's well-meaning people who have dated views by our current it's, standards. Yeah. It's a deconstructor deconstruction of centrism, which I That's like. Right. I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, number eight, Nazi, 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 apt pupil. Nazi, 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 <laughs> apt pupil. Yeah. You too. Yeah, same. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Shoot. Here's where I think we're going to get interesting. Oh, okay. I thought, mm-hmm. I think we've been riveting this entire segment. Number seven, Dark Tower. <laughs> uh, should be lower. Okay. But the apt pupil cast inclu- and crew includes like just, horrible people. They're so, so good. I knocked it. Yeah. So here's where I put 1408. Yeah. I put it How at number seven. How does feel? Um... Feeling pretty good about All my right. placement. I think I'm always on. I think I'm always right on. Well, you know what I got to say to that, mister? My number six say? is 1408. Oh, baby. Real close. We're calling our shots. Yeah. Real close because I think what we're going to find, and it's going to become pretty apparent in the last six here, last five. And there's a big gulf five. there for me. 1408 is handily gulf. better than Dark Tower. Like, that's a break yeah, point. <laughs> there's, like, there's like five winners, like three pretty good mm-hmm. and then like just different shades of awful 
That's yeah. what we've covered so far. Not mm-hmm. saying that's true about the the canon. I'm just saying we've done 20 of them, and that's what that's what the that's, right. that's the haps. Uh, so yeah, you said six is 1408. This is where I put Running Man, just because it's so much goddamn fun. It is fun. You know what's not fun? My number five, The Mist. The Mist is where I put it. Oh, nice. And uh, all I want to say about its relationship to 1408 is 1408 could be tied for five for me or may have beaten The Mist. But what it came down to is that third act, all the stuff I said about it and the fact that The Mist also changed the ending of the short story in a way that is famously... Uh, an ending that makes people go, oh my God, the ending of the miss. Jeez. So like, Jeez. I just think their ability to, to nail the landing puts the mist above 1408. Yeah. For real. Number. For real. There's still tropes mm-hmm. in that. There's still tropes all around that are very like, uh, Stephen King tropes. Yeah. But I feel, I find they are parallel movies in that regard. Like yeah. They're they real both close. have, yeah. they both do the Rolodex thing as well. If you remember. And they're both like, you're trapped in the mist. The mist can do anything it wants. Here comes some shit. Right. And same as 1408. Uh, number four, Misery. Mm-hmm. Now we're in Masterpiece number territory f- for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. now now we're getting Masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, number four, Doctor Sleep. Number three, Stand By Me. Number three, Misery. Number two, Doctor Sleep. Number two, Stand By Me. Number one, The Shining. The Shining. So, Still yeah. has... The Crown. My top two is a single franchise. That's interesting. <laughs> Honestly, I put Doctor Sleep on at number four, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I every time I read this list, I feel like I'm sleeping on it. But Misery and Stand By Me are also so fucking good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And The they Mist really is are. so fucking good. Mm-hmm. It really is the top five in their own caliber. Uh, and then you know, yeah. And then the rest. it tails off. We can't really all be quickly. kings. But we can. We are the kings of king. That's did the it. stand. That's the show. We did it. Good for us. Uh, what a, what yeah. a good episode. If you're listening to this and you didn't know, we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash small beans where you can see like cool sketches and series we've made. If you dig back into the backlog, I recommend you do because uh, there are some before I moved up to San Francisco, we made some kick ass videos. Um, but lately... Mm-hmm. We've been making a bunch of exclusive patron-only podcasts, like bonus episodes of I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours, Spielboys, Star Trek The Next Futurama, uh, Bewilderments and Scientifics. The multi-curse. Escape from the multi-curse. All kinds of cool stuff. So Yeah. And we recently opened our Discord community up to the public. So head over to the Patreon, hit up the Discord link, join us over there. We have movie nights every Monday. Uh, I think that's all the stuff we got to plug. I think that's all the stuff we got to plug. Yeah. So cool. come on by. Uh, hope you enjoyed your turkey day for people who enjoyed your turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's a wrap, my man. Time to make a trip to fam to have some trip to fam. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.